verses 20 to 30. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And to you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. And at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This is God's Word. You may be seated. Well, good morning. My name is Sam, and I have the joy of preaching here often. We go, again, straight through books of the Bible, and last week uh, I ended up kind of chopping up a chunk, and I do that often and change the way that we even break it down in our study guide, and I found that I could probably spend, as weird as it is, the whole time on the four verses, and I rewrote my whole sermon in the shower this morning and was very tempted to do that, but I will not, um, but we're going to go straight through and see what Jesus teaches here. Well, the Bible teaches us that every word of Scripture is God-breathed, and that's why we believe, whether it be a narrative, whether it be geographical boundaries or measurements for a temple or genealogies or passages like this, they are all God's Word, and they came to us through men that were inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so each book is supreme in its authority, but it's also unique in its character. Matthew has a very unique book. He wrote to teach. He's a teacher, former tax collector, very organized, very systematic. His book is very organized, very systematic. And it is actually the most comprehensive record we have of Jesus' direct teaching. It's not only a full account of everything Jesus did, it's the biggest account or the best account, most complete record of everything Jesus said. Now, it was historically called the book of Jesus' sayings. And it was used as one of the first kind of textbooks, if you will, for the early church to instruct people about what Jesus taught and what Jesus did. Now, ironically, most non-believers in our culture, most people for that matter, believe it or not, Describe Jesus as loving and wise, and generally, most will say he was a good teacher. But few actually have taken the time to read Matthew, or probably learn what Jesus actually said. Strange, you could be a good teacher and not really know what Jesus taught, but I think most people don't. Now, that's probably because it's easier to... Uh, sit in a church, honestly, or read a book or a blog or whatever and learn about Jesus from the words of men and dismiss those than it is to dismiss the words of Jesus himself about himself. That's a little more difficult to go, oh, well, Jesus never taught that. When he just says it directly, it's difficult to argue with. Jesus didn't just preach morals of good living. He didn't just give good advice. He actually said some very difficult, hard, painful things. And in this text today, somewhat uncharacteristically maybe for what you assume Jesus was like, or what we, a lot of people I should say, assume he's like, he comes off as uh, unapologetically judgmental. He comes off as a deeply theological and also warmly encouraging all at the same time. 
And so up to this point, that being Matthew kind of 1 through 10, he's been that Jesus, kind of just a humble servant that's gone around the hills of Galilee, kind of wandering around, healing people, teaching people with very few confrontations, minus maybe an argument with a demon-possessed man, right? That's about it. He hasn't picked any fights, but we're going to see as these next few chapters unfold, he picks a lot of fights. And it's not difficult for him because everyone basically wants to kill him. But Jesus um, brought a message that is very different than had been brought before. He brought a message of good news for the most part. He brought a message of healing, which kind of had been done before by some people. But very few things that would make you go, hmm, I don't know if I agree with that today. Jesus unexpectedly turns into what can only be described as a fire and brimstone preacher. He starts condemning specific cities to hell. If that's not shocking enough, Jesus proceeds to thank God for hiding the truth from the very cities he just condemned. What? Yeah. He thanks him for revealing it to Losers, we'll say, at least in culture, guys like Matthew, who are tax collectors, viewed worse than like pimps. Finally, if that's, again, not shocking enough, Jesus declares himself to be the only way, the one and only way to God, and he invites anyone and everyone who is tired of failing life to come to him and rest. That's what he does. Now, what the real Jesus, and I say real Jesus because in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says there's lots of Jesuses out there. So the real biblical Jesus, what he says, honestly, it is surprising at times, disturbing at times, offensive at times, encouraging at times, and sometimes all the same, all those things at one time. And that's what we have here. And so what I'm going to ask you to do as we go into this text is instead of trying to kind of, as you read it, go, mm, he couldn't have meant that. Instead of trying to play literary or theological yoga in your mind to try and make what your gut says, like, feel better, just surrender your need to understand and rest in what Jesus says. Surrender your need to have to comprehend it perfectly and just rest in what Jesus says. Because there's some things in here that I'm going to go, I don't know, but this is what it says. And it's crazy. So let's see what some of the crazy things Jesus says is. In verses 20 to 24, previously he had compared uh, the generation that he is in to children on the playground who are never satisfied. Jesus proceeds, as I said, to denounce specific cities that he had visited in Galilee. So these cities are around the Sea of Galilee that he had lived and, and ministered in at this point. And what we see is that he is both angry and grieved at the same time. And I would just, as a side note, say that anger is never righteous if it's not accompanied by grief. You'll see Jesus constantly condemning the righteous Pharisees, self-righteous Pharisees, I should say, and usually the two words together are, he was both angered and grieved. Now, Jesus here is angered and grieved, and that's why he talks about this woe, right? He says, woe to you. It's this grief-filled judgment of these three cities, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and his hometown of Capernaum. I say hometown because Jesus was born in Bethlehem, moved up as a youngster to live with his family and be raised in Nazareth. And when he started his ministry, he started to live in Capernaum, which is on the Sea of Galilee, the coastal city. Now, Jesus had performed all kinds of miracles in these cities, and they're recorded in the first part of Matthew. These are where most of his miracles are being uh, performed. Demon possessions, blind are beginning to see, those kinds of things. And he doesn't condemn the opposition that he experienced there because he didn't experience a lot of opposition. 
he actually condemns their response to him. Jesus compares, I mean, we just kind of read it for what it says. He compares these cities that he has lived in and, and ministered in to ancient cities that were very pagan, very sinful, very evil. And the city he's hardest on is his hometown, Capernaum. Most likely, because he would go home, and he would leave, and he would go home, and he would leave, and he probably did many, if not most, of his miracles up to this point there. And you can imagine Capernaum might have got a little bit of a prideful excitement about the fact that, oh, you know, Jesus, he's from Capernaum. Right? You can imagine bumper stickers on the back of Amel's bottom, like Camel's bottoms, right? Like, you know, Jesus, I know Jesus. He's from, I'm from Capernaum, like Jesus, right? All these things. And that's why, actually, scholars believe that Capernaum and the people of Capernaum started being like, man, we're like the heavenly city. And Jesus says, you think you're heavenly? I'm going to take you down to hell. And if that's not worse... He says, you've been so exposed more than anyone else, not only am I going to send you down a city, Sodom, of sexual deviance will have an easier time than you there. Ouch! Right? Suddenly it's not so awesome to be from Capernaum. Jesus is throwing out some serious judgment here. Humble, meek, and mild Jesus. Now, we often hear churches and Christians talking about the impending judgment of the world. But I think the sobering idea that we have here is that Jesus unleashes His grief-filled judgment on cities that are largely Jewish Christians. He sets them lower than the pagan cities. You may not know that most of Jesus' references to hell in the Bible are usually directed to those people who wrongly believe they're actually saved. In other words, when Jesus speaks about judgment, Christians should listen. Because the message of judgment is actually a sobering one for Christians. For those who claim to believe in Jesus. For those who have claimed to be in the presence of Jesus. For those who have experienced Jesus. It's a message for those who Jesus would describe as lukewarm, comfortable, fake, but still enjoy the presence of God. Those who experience and enjoy the works of Jesus and the presence of Jesus without any heart change. Because that was all these cities experienced. There's a sobering reality that we see here, and that is that just because Jesus is present doesn't mean hearts are changed. Just because Jesus is present doesn't mean hearts are changed. Just because someone believes or says they are close to Jesus doesn't mean they're actually saved by them. The presence of Jesus in a place, even one through which Jesus does great works, right? Doesn't guarantee salvation for everyone who's there. Now this is scary as a pastor. It should be scary just as a Christian. Because they're Basically, a lot of countries, a lot of cities, a lot of communities, a lot of churches who are going to be in special trouble at Judgment Day. Not because Jesus has not really been in their midst, but because He has. Think about that. It's hard to believe, but what that means is that Jesus does actually many wonderful works in places where they ultimately don't love Him. Jesus will oftentimes rebuild. Jesus will oftentimes be present. He will rescue and He will restore communities that ultimately reject Him. 
But we know that we truly love Jesus when we are actually changed by Him. Not because we say we love Him. Jesus isn't interested in people talking about His presence and being excited about His presence and telling everyone that Jesus is here. He's interested in the response to His presence. What it actually does. It doesn't matter if you claim that your life or your church is all about Jesus if you're truly not repenting in His presence. It doesn't matter what you claim. Repentance is the sign of right response to Jesus' presence. Not just a lot of people, not just a lot of religious stuff in your life. Repentance is the sign of a right response to Jesus. This scary thought echoes what Jesus said several chapters ago, which I thought was, and I think are still, some of the scariest words in the Bible. And he spoke them to so-called believers, saying in Matthew chapter 7, not everyone, not every person, not every church, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, the day of judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not preach in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do tons of mighty, awesome works? Right? They did the works. They experienced Jesus' presence in a very... Jesus performed things and He says, I never knew you. Depart from Me. That's scary to me. To know that as we gather as a church and we experience the presence of Jesus in our worship, and we experience the presence of Jesus in preaching, and we experience the presence of Jesus just in fellowship, to know that that doesn't necessarily mean anything. And the sign of, of true experience with Christ is a heart that is humbled and repented, who sees their sin and cries out for mercy. So Jesus is grieved. He's grieved by this lack of response in men. He's grieved by the lack of response to people like, I, I healed right in front of you. I mean, I, I did these things. He grieves in the rejection, but He doesn't stay there. He directs His anguish, right? We should have some anguish over a lack of response to Jesus in people that we know, in friends and family, who have heard the truth, who know the truth, who experience Jesus, in churches, we're like, why won't they change? You should be grieved by that, but not ultimately devastated by that. Where does Jesus go? He directs His anguish to praise in God's sovereignty. What does He say? In verse 25, at that time, so he's like, woe to you, woe to you. You saw all these things. You experienced all these things. No one is believing me. And he says, he declares, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such is your gracious will. See, most people, we hope you understand this. The majority of people who live will reject Jesus. Even if they enjoy His presence. But just because hearts are not changed does not mean God is not in control. That's why Jesus can praise God. He doesn't get overwhelmed or lost in the sin of men, which is very easy for us to do. The sin of the trail of friends, the sin of family members hurting us in some way, the sin of pastors hurting us. Like you can get so overwhelmed and, and almost enslaved to it and beat down and go, I can't believe this. Jesus doesn't work. There is no good church. Jesus doesn't get overwhelmed or lost in sin of men because He trusts 
more in the character of a good God than he does in the character of bad circumstances or bad men. He can truly live out Psalm 46, which says, I'm going to be still and know God. I'm not going to be still and expect, it'll all work out the way I want. I'm going to be still and know that that person will stop doing what they're doing. I'm going to be still and know that God is sovereign. I'm going to be still and know that God is in control. I'm going to be still to know that God is God. He's still ruling. He's still reigning. And He is in control of every minutia and every major devastation. Despite what everyone would say was failure on Jesus' mission, right? Well, you couldn't save any people in your own hometown? What's wrong with you? He's like, thank you, Lord. Thank you for failure. And he's not praying for himself. It's not like Jesus really is worried. He prays for us to see. He prays for us to see that it's an act of worship to admit that even though we don't have it all figured out, God does. God does. And then he begins to reveal some very disturbing details of how God actually does it. How his plan unfolds. And he says that begins by saying, Father's in charge of everything. This term sovereign, right? He is sovereign. I like the proverb, 1921, that says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. See, the sovereignty of God means simply this. God has supreme, unlimited, and irresistible power to accomplish what He wants, when He wants, how He wants. Nothing can stop God. God rules and works according to His eternal purpose. Even, here we go, are you ready for this? He works according to His own eternal purpose, even though the events that we see seem to contradict and oppose His rule. So Jesus thanks God for both hiding and revealing. He's like, dude, you are orchestrating this whole thing. Then he goes further and he says, he actually hides from the wise and understanding. This is how his plan unfolds. And he reveals it to little children. Doesn't probably literally mean little children, though I think we see many little children who have much stronger faith than we do. But the difference between these two is Talking about the wise understanding, the little children is the difference between one who is puffed up in spirit and believe they deserve to be saved and the other who is poor in spirit and knows that they don't. One who is self-reliant and self-sufficient and self-righteous and the other who is humble and helpless and hungry for Jesus' righteousness. Okay? Now, the thing about revealing is this. Oh, you've revealed to little children, right? You've revealed to the humble. Humility is never voluntary. Humility and repentance are never voluntary. And that's why we have to cry out to God. Humility is a gift of grace that God wills. Let me prove it to you. 1 Timothy 2.25, awesome verse says this, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance that may lead to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. When we have no response, right? When there nothing's changing, when sin is reigning in a man or an organization, whatever, we're like, I can't believe it. Where do we turn, God? Thank you, God, that you're in control. I pray that you will grant repentance because there's no way I can force it. That's what we try to do. We try to force people's repentance, talk them into repentance. God's the one who's going to grant repentance, so God is the one we turn to, and we can rejoice that that individual or that organization or whatever it is will repent when God grants it. We can trust in God's sovereignty. We can trust God is in control. And you wonder, like, well, why would God do it this way? Fantastic question. Why would he ever want to do it this way? 
Luckily, Jesus tells us. I'm not telling you it's going to be satisfying, but he tells us. We're not easily satisfied. We're like those kids telling their playmates to, to do what we want. Jesus says God is acting according to his gracious will. God's plan is always unfolding in two ways. In love and certainty. You can always trust that God's plan is going to happen, and you can always trust that he is acting in love and grace. Let us not forget that men, and I say men, women, mankind, people, young, old, ugly, good-looking, fat, skinny, educated, uneducated, rich, poor, whatever, whatever people, we are not unaware innocent beings. We are sinful rebels to whom God owes nothing. Now, it's hard to hear, but it's true. But that just speaks to God's grace that much more. Hiding is not an act of judgment, or I'm sorry, it is an act of judgment, but it's a justified one. And revelation of revealing what the truth is is an act of gracious love. Jesus delights, okay, he's praising God, thanking God. He delights in God's hiding and God's revealing. Why? Because it guarantees that God is the one who is ultimately in control of everyone. The plan, this should, this should bring us comfort, especially those who are experiencing, who have experienced incredible tragedy, brokenness, which honestly is everybody, different flavors, different colors, but everyone has trials. It should bring us great comfort that the plan of God is not dependent upon men. It is designed to lead us to praise God. What does he say in 1 Corinthians 1? God chose. Not like, well, it's all he had. Right? God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And we kind of think of foolish people. Guess what? It seems foolish to me to save the world through suffering. That wouldn't be my first option. No, it should be victory, great king, weapons, destruction, right? That's how you deal with sin. No, I'm going to deal with sin by paying for it on a cross, the eternal Son of God dying and raising from the dead. Didn't see that one coming. That seems kind of foolish. But he chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring the nothing to things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. As we see life unfolding, as we see the brokenness of men and people rejecting and people receiving, we boast that the Lord is the one who is doing it. You, if you are a Christian, you dare not boast, oh, I just one day figured it out. Oh, I just figured it was the best option now. I understand. I read my Bible. I did good works. Don't you ever take credit for your salvation. Your salvation was a result of Jesus calling you. Of Jesus taking what was a blind man and causing you to see. When a blind man gets sight, he doesn't go, well, I just opened my eyes one day. I've been keeping them closed all the time. I didn't know that, right? No, he's blind. Eyes are open, blind, boom. No credit for that. You who the Bible says is reborn, well, I just birthed myself again. No, you don't get credit for that. You who the Bible says is dead in sin and was made alive, I just decided to resurrect myself one day. No, you don't get credit for that. God does it all. God reveals. God saves. And he does so so that we will boast and praise him and not get freaked out when things are going our way. Jesus wants us to rest in sovereignty, especially when we see the rejection of him everywhere. Now, it is true that God's sovereignty and his ways he works is mysterious, right? It's like I didn't 
couldn't have predicted that, couldn't plan that. But it, God's plan isn't a complete mystery. I always go to Deuteronomy 29, 29, which says the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. In other words, there's a lot that remains a mystery about God's plans, and I dare not try to say like, oh, I see exactly what God's doing, right? No. But there's a ton that he's revealed. A ton. He has told us. Namely, the Bible says that God's divine character, that God's divine and sovereign plan, found and finds his expression in the person and work of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That's what he has revealed. Directed all eyes and everything towards him. This is what Jesus says about himself, right? Oh, he's a great teacher. Crack open Matthew chapter 11 and let's see if they still say that after reading this. What does Jesus say? All things. And in the Greek, that means all, okay? Everything. What about this? What about everything has been handed over to me by my Father. And no one, no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. That should make you a little uncomfortable if you read what it said. We're talking about the sovereignty of God still. We're not supposed to spend every waking moment trying to figure out God's plan. He wants us to rest in the revelation of His Son as the key to the plan. And what does that mean? Well, it means this. A, Jesus is supreme. He is the most important person and thing of all. Jesus is not just a great teacher among other teachers. He's not just some religious leader among other religious leaders or a tragic hero that all literature is based on. Jesus says that the Father and Him share all things. Translated, Jesus is God. If you share all things with the Father, you share all authority, you share all power, you share all everything. And what that means is this, if you think about it. Yes, I know, Jesus comes, takes on human flesh. Okay, God enters into brokenness. God humbles himself to serve me. God dies on the cross for me. If you want to know what God is like, you don't need to just imagine. That's kind of the problem. You need to crack open your Bible and look at what Jesus is like. Because Jesus is not just God-like. God is Jesus-like. You want to know what God is like? You want to know what God thinks? You want to know how God acts? Jesus. He goes further and says, I alone know God. In other words, you cannot learn about God without Jesus. Any claims to be spiritual or mystical or psychic all fail because they're not connected with Jesus. There is no knowledge. There is no knowledge of God the Father that has not come through Jesus that is not brought into the individual heart by the Holy Spirit, often called the Spirit of Christ. And many will go, what about general, well, I shouldn't say that, some of you theologian types, well, what about general revelation, right? We can learn about God. Okay, John chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, Jesus created. God created everything through Jesus, by Jesus, for Jesus. So everything comes through Jesus. All roads do not lead to God. And any road that does runs through Jesus. Then he goes further, right? And he says, I save people. Jesus saves people. We don't save ourselves. Jesus saves people. And he saves who he wants, when he wants. 
No one is saved through good morals. No one is saved through good works. No one is saved through good intentions. No one. I'm sure there are many, many nice people worshiping many false gods and many false religions who do not know Jesus and therefore are not saved. Anyone who is saved is saved through the revelation of Jesus, about Jesus, from Jesus. Acts 4.12, what does Peter say? It's like second sermon ever. He says, there is no salvation in, there's salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's no one else. So, what do we see? We see that Jesus chooses, Jesus reveals, Jesus saves, Jesus changes, Jesus keeps. Right? This changes everything because if Jesus is the one saving me, then I guess Jesus is the one who's going to lose me or not. He keeps you because he's the one that saved you. If you just came on some discovery path and chose Jesus, yeah, I'd be fearful you'd unchoose him one day as well. But if Jesus is the one holding on to you, no fear. The most important questions in life are not what am I achieving or what am I doing right or what have I done wrong, but what am I believing about Jesus? That's the most important question. So you can have a lot without Jesus. You can have a lot of knowledge. You can have a lot of success. You can have a lot of fame and influence. But what we see here is that there is no talking about the plans of the Almighty God without talking about Jesus. And there is no talk about the meaning of life without talking about Jesus. And there's no talking about spiritual things without talking about Jesus. And no talk about hope for change without talking about Jesus. There's no talking about rest in whatever aspect of life you're discontent without talking about Jesus. Because I know when we experience a sense of discontent, what we want to talk about is a better job, more money, better friends, this relationship. No! Jesus is where the talk must begin. Jesus is the one who brings all rest that we need. And I, the last verses of 28 to 30, Jesus says that the receiving of the revelation, I say receiving intentionally, receiving of the revelation of who Jesus is should lead us to rest. What do I mean by that? Well, Jesus says here, very famous verse, verse that's like on all kinds of posters with cool pictures on it. It says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Revelation is key to rest. What do I mean by that? If you learn nothing, learn this. If you and this will go for probably most of us, if you are not restful in your life, if you are not discontent in some area, or if you are discontent in some area of your life, if you feel overburdened as a way of life, overburdened by relationships, overburdened by brokenness of some kind, overburdened by finances, if you are regularly discontent, regularly overburdened, regularly just not restful in your life, you have stopped believing something about Jesus. That's the problem. Because if Jesus is not all-powerful, there's no rest. And if Jesus is not all-knowing, there's no rest. And if Jesus is not gracious, not forgiving, you mess up, yeah, there's no rest. And if Jesus is not present knowing every issue that you're going through, yeah, I'd be pretty restless. But Jesus is all those things. 
And when he reveals that to you, who he is, of his supremacy and his power, he invites you to take what is free, which is rest. He invites those to whom he's revealed himself to respond to the invitation. And it's weird to say that, right? Because like, well, the guys in Capernaum aren't responding because he didn't reveal. You're right. And so the only people that will respond to the invitation are those to whom he's revealed himself. But even to those who reveal, like, they know who Jesus is, it's funny, we don't rest very well. And I'll show you why. But Jesus calls, particularly those who labor, of those who believe, those who find themselves heavy laden, those for whom life is difficult but believe, those for whom doubts, like John the Baptist, right, are happening but you believe, those who find themselves struggling with sin but you believe, those who feel burdened with guilt, right, but you believe, those who feel beat up, those who feel like a failure, but yet you believe, right? I'm not resting, but I believe. Reformer John Calvin said, failures make us fit to receive God's grace. You see, Jesus doesn't invite those who believe they have it all together. It's those who admit they don't. Not didn't, right? Oh, I didn't have it together like before. No, I mean don't. Like right now. It's okay. See, I think many of us think that once we become a Christian, we have to pretend like we have it all together. It's okay. I don't have it all together. I screw up often. I sin all the time. I don't have it all together. You shouldn't have to admit, we can, Jesus knows you're a failure. There you go. It's out. Cat's out of the bag. Right? How do you know? Yeah, he knows. We can rest in that. It's not, it's not like Jesus ever is like, oh my gosh, I can't believe they did that. Is he grieved? Yes. But for those who believe, those who are his children, he doesn't reject you. He doesn't throw you out. He's grieved and he hugs and he says, come rest. Come rest. And he offers a different yoke, right? We like, the yoke is that that piece of hardware used to pull the plow or the wagon, whatever you're pulling. He invites us to remove what is a burdensome yoke that we are living under. And in this context, more than likely that the biggest yoke around is the heavy yoke of religion that the Pharisees have put on them that basically says, you need to get yourself right before Jesus will love you. That's what it is. That's a heavy burden because guess what? I'm really wrong. And if I have to get myself right, then that's going to be a really restless time of working really hard to prove myself and I'm just not going to probably make it. But see, even though Jesus' yoke is different, it's actually not any less righteous. Like, remember the Sermon on the Mount? It's actually infinitely more righteous. The difference is, Jesus' yoke is easy because he gives it to you. Freely. But the thing about believers is that we find it difficult to rest in in that. What we believe, we can't rest in what we believe. So I was exploring this, and I heard a sermon, and it was actually Tim Keller explaining what Martin Lloyd-Jones said. So I love both those guys. So I figured I'd just quote them because they do it way better. But he was exploring that idea of why can't we rest in what we know? And here's what he said. Again, this is Keller explaining what Martin Lloyd-Jones said. He says, imagine that you were a slave in the southern United States before the Emancipation Proclamation. That means that you couldn't vote, you had no power, and somebody could beat you up and probably kill you. You didn't have rights. So if you were in town and some white person told you to do this or that and was abusive to you, you were very frightened and did anything he said. 
But now it's 10 years later, and the Emancipation Proclamation has been issued, giving them all freedom. You have rights, but you walk into town 10 years later, and a white person starts to yell at you, and even though you know in your head, hey, I have some rights here, you're still scared and acting like a slave. I think he says rightly this, that this is the tendency of every Christian. You know, but you don't know. You have rest in your mind, not in your soul. You know that you've been saved from slavery to sin and that you should live free. Because if you really believed in your heart what you know in your head, right? Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Then you would not still be a slave in your heart to success or whatever other people think of you. Like, we know, but we don't know. Christ wants us to rest in what He says. To believe what He says. The yoke of Jesus is easy, not because it requires you to do less, because guess what? Here's the secret. It requires you to do nothing. Martin Luther, about becoming a Christian, said this, What? We have nothing to do? No, nothing. Be still and realize that all your salvation is in Jesus. Be still. You have nothing to contribute at all. Look at Him. And that will make you holy. And if you're not a Christian, it will make you a Christian. We not only rest in Jesus' work, but we rest in His continual working you see, a yoke is a wooden cross being meant for two. And so I'll close with, I hope, this encouragement. We can rest in failure because we know even if we trip up, Jesus is still working. We can rest in adversity because we know when it gets tough, Jesus is already doing all the heavy lifting. We can rest in life because guess what? We never, ever, ever, ever face it without Him. You may face it without anyone else, but Jesus will never forsake you. He will never leave you. He will never reject you for those who believe on His name and confess with their mouth that He is Lord, that He died on the cross for their sins, and that He was raised from the dead to give them eternal life he will never, ever, ever reject you. And so there's no need to hide your sin. You can confess it because he already knows it. There's no need to fear men because you have all the approval you could ever have in Christ. There's no need to work for acceptance because he gives it to you. You can rest in the work and the continuing work of Jesus. So I flat out invite you to surrender your need to understand, your compulsion to have to work, your desire to have to prove, and simply rest in what Jesus said, rest in what Jesus did, and rest in what He is still doing. Amen? Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank You for the grace that You have poured out to us. Lord, You know that we are broken sinners. You know that we are rebellious. You know every dark, dirty secret we have, and yet You say, I love You. I forgive You. You have nothing to fear. I pray, Father, that You will open the eyes of the blind who are here to see that Jesus is much more than a good teacher. He is God incarnate. And that God came down and entered into our brokenness. That God came and died on the cross for our sins. And that His blood was spilt for us. And it is of infinite weight. So there is nothing that cannot be covered. Nothing that cannot be cleansed. I thank You, Jesus for the rest that we have in You. I pray that we can truly 
find contentment in what you have done and stop trying to pursue it in the world. I pray for those who in Christ, we can live out who Jesus says we are and not listen to what anyone else says we might be. May Jesus Christ's name be lifted high in this church and in this city and in this state and in our homes. And it is His name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Sam, for that sermon. Very good word. We're going to take communion here over the next couple of songs. We invite you to come up. I'm going to read a few verses from John. It says, this is uh, when Lazarus had died. He said to to Lazarus' sister, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And if you believe this today, if you believe that Jesus died for you, that he is your hope and your resurrection, when you come up and take communion, take the wine and you take the bread, think of Jesus and what he's done for you. It's uh, to remember what he's done and also to remember that he did rise from the dead, that he is our resurrection. That is our hope. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have given yourself, you have sacrificed everything so that we only have to look to you for all that we need in salvation. You are our righteousness. You are our cleansing. And as we take communion, we pray that you would cleanse us, that you would fix our eyes upon Christ in a way that we never let go. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.